Listen, if you want to follow some of these thrill-seeking ministries, the thrill of today will become tomorrow's letdown. You'll always need more. But I can tell you this, you can evaluate any ministry, any time, any place by its teaching. It's not an issue of emotion. You cannot evaluate it by the size of it, by the mass of it, by the sensation of it, by the emotion of it, by the teaching of it. What do they teach? Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The Doubt Before the Feast. Yesterday, we began a look at the unbelief the brothers of Jesus had at him as Messiah. This, by living under the same roof, it was not until his resurrection that his brothers believed that he was who he claimed to be. But as we continue our study in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, we find Jesus' brothers egging him on to go into Jerusalem and prove to the religious leaders that he was indeed the promised Messiah. As we rejoin Pastor Carl, he explains why it was that Jesus' brothers, although devout believers in God the Father, could not comprehend God the Son. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. And so this seven-month hiatus, as it were, between chapter 6 and chapter 7 and verse 2 teaches us a very important lesson, that you cannot measure the worth of a ministry by how many people you jam into a building. It can only be measured by discipleship, and discipleship is not just feeding people and entertaining people, it's teaching people. Oh, when he fed them, the mobs came. Entertainment, it was the best. Nobody had seen these kinds of miracles before. But when he began to teach them, they abandoned him in droves. No problem in generating a crowd if you don't want to teach the whole counsel of God. But if you want to teach all that I commanded you that came from his lips or what would come ultimately through the apostles' pens, then it is another story. So God calls us to teach the word. That's the first line of discipleship. It begins, of course, in our own homes. There may be some bumps in the road, but God calls you to teach your children that's where it begins. And then it begins out in the world. There will be people that we will reach. And this is one of the reasons I'm so excited about this children's conference, because I believe it's going to help us reach children in this county who do not go to church. You know, I hope you know that the vast majority of this county, well over two-thirds, are not in church today. This is an unchurched county. Two-thirds of the children in America, according to Barna Research Group, will not go to church this year. Most children no longer attend church. Everything has changed in America. And so we need to disciple people, beginning in our own home, and with those God will entrust to us. You say, well, pastor, I really can't disciple anyone because I'm not perfect. Listen, if you're going to wait till you reach a certain level of maturity, number one, you'll never mature. If you wait until you get, quote, unquote, perfect, you're going to have to wait until the rapture, and then it will be too late. You won't be able to disciple anyone. No, you begin as God gives you the opportunity. It's not an issue of perfection. It's an issue of direction. What direction are you going in this morning? You need to ask yourself the question, do I have a growing relationship with the Lord? And if God wants to reproduce His life through me, 
Is your life worth reproducing? After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There's a contract on his life. They want to take him out. But being on a divine schedule, they can't do it because no one will take his life away. He will give it. Verse 2. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was at hand. There are six feasts that God prescribed in the Old Testament. A seventh that came about as a result of the deliverance that God provided through Esther. An eighth that came between the two testaments called Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights that we're going to see mentioned here in the Gospel of John. But of those six feasts that God prescribed, three of them were commanded for every Jew to celebrate once a year. The first was Passover, the second was Pentecost, and the third was Tabernacles that came in the September-October time frame. And each feast was to remember how God had provided and taken care of their forefathers. He established very certain feasts so that they would never, ever forget what God had done. But not only did these feasts look back, they looked ahead because each of these six feasts pictured both the first and second comings of Christ. And we'll begin to see that as we come to the end of this chapter as it relates to this feast. And so since our Lord kept the law, he came under the law, obeyed the law, he's going to go to the feast. It's a time of thanksgiving as they remember the harvest. And so it's also called in the Bible, the feast of ingathering. It was a time of celebration, much like our Thanksgiving. But it was also a time to remember the wilderness wanderings as God provided, as God gave them a reminder that He is a faithful God, and as He could provide for that generation, He can provide for this generation. So how did they remember it? Well, they remembered it through the Feast of Booths. You might want to put out next to verse 2, Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. From the 15th to the 21st, of the month of Tishri. You say, what is Tishri? Tishri was the Jewish month that would correspond to our September slash October. Our calendar does not perfectly correlate with the Jewish calendar. Why? Because they followed a lunar calendar. We follow the Roman calendar. Now, sometimes in the church, we follow the lunar calendar. Every year, someone asks me, every year, someone asks me, why is Easter not always on the same day? Well, because we're following the lunar calendar like the Jews. And so we're in the time frame of September, October. And this event that takes place, they were to build booths. You know, when we were kids, we used to go to this forest near our home. It was called Pine Forest, and it was about a mile walk. Me and my brothers used to love to go, and we would build lean-tos. You'd take some fork sticks, and you'd create a, a roof, and you'd have this lean-to, and we'd camp out overnight under our lean-to. Very similar to what they were doing. Josephus tells us that they'd come in from all over Palestine, from outside of Palestine, and they would come into Jerusalem, and there in the streets, in the center of town and along the pathways, they would build these booths. If you lived in the town, you'd put it in your courtyard or in these flat roofs. They'd put some of them up there on the building. Now, someone may want to help that dear lady and show her where our nursery is because she may not be aware of it, all right? Now, listen to me. <laughs> They're building these booths, and they're living in these booths. Why are they living? Look up here. Look over here. They're living in these booths to remember God's faithfulness to his people 
as a nation. They're commemorating that God is a faithful God. And one of the things that they do is they have this torchlight procession. Why? Because it was a reminder of how God led them with a pillar of fire by night. And when they come to the last day of the feast, they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would pour out barrels and barrels of water on the ground, a double portion on the last day because it was to remind them of how God provided for them from the rock. And of course, Jesus, before we're done in this chapter, is going to show how that pointed to him. Now, that's the setting for this doubt. That's important. Secondly, not only the setting for the doubt, I want you to consider this morning the brothers who do doubt. Look at verse 3. We're told, his brothers therefore said to him. Now, Matthew 1 and verse 25 tells us that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to the Lord Jesus. Until implies they had normal marital relations after the Lord Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 speaks of the fact that Jesus was Mary's firstborn. Implication, she had other children. By the way, these brothers in this verse are never called cousins, as some who wanted to defend the perpetual virginity of Mary say. These were Jesus' real brothers. He had other brothers and sisters. Now, they were half-brothers because they were the sons of both Mary and Joseph. Whereas the Lord Jesus was just the son of Mary, he was conceived and sired by God the Holy Spirit. Now, there was never a time when he was not, but there was a time when he did not have a human body. And that's the role that the Spirit of God supernaturally, miraculously, mysteriously, mystically played as he brought into one person someone who is fully God and fully man. He's not half God, he's not half man, he's not all God and no man, he's not all man and no God. He's the God-man inseparably brought together into one person, much different from his other brothers. In fact, the other brothers are named in Scripture. You might want to put in the margin next to this verse, Matthew 13, 55. On another occasion, when they're really attacking the Lord, they said, is this the carpenter's son? Is not this the carpenter's son? Well, they were wrong on that note because he wasn't. He was the son of God. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? So he had brothers. The four of them are named. He has sisters. They're unnamed. It's in the plural, so he had at least two. So we know that the Lord grew up in a family of at least seven children. Now, when you come down to verse 5, John is going to point out that these brothers are unbelievers. On another occasion, when Jesus is bringing together this huge multitude of people, his own people are going to come, his, his family, and they're going to conclude that Jesus is out of his mind. And so these unbelieving brothers are going to give the Lord some advice. Now, it's going to change. They're going to come to faith. In fact, one of them is going to write the epistle of James, and another brother is going to write the epistle of Jude. But we read in verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. Don't waste your time out here, Jesus, in the sticks. Forget the countryside. Go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. If you are really interested in religious prominence, go where the people are. Go to the capital city, the center of our religion, and prove yourself. They say in verse 4, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What are they saying? 
They're saying, if you are the Messiah of the nation, if you are going to advance your cause, you need to go to the center. Forget this stuff out here in the villages and in the sticks. Go up there into the center of religion. Now, his brothers, by the way, were absolutely right. If you want to promote yourself, you go where the crowd is. But they're operating from a worldly point of view. What were their motives? Well, there's a lot of uh, speculation over this. Some people think that they just had this impatient zeal for the Lord Jesus to show His glory, to bring in the kingdom. Maybe they'd have a key role in it. No, clearly not. Verse 5 indicates at this point they're still unbelievers. Others argue that there was a malignant hatred in their hearts. And they knew that if he went up to Jerusalem and manifested himself with miracles, that the religious leaders would get all bent out of shape and that they'd kill him. I think not. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. In Mark 3 and verse 12, and uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, on another occasion that is paralleled to this seventh month, seven month time frame in between Passover and Feast of Booths, we learn that. There was a time when he was preaching. The place was so crowded they couldn't even find a place to eat. And he came home, we're told, in Mark 3, and the multitude gathered together to such an extent they couldn't even eat a meal. And when his own people, a reference here to his own family, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he's lost his senses. Now they were wrong in their evaluation of him, but not in their love for him. They loved him. They really thought he had lost his senses. You got somebody in your family, they go off their rocker, what do you do? You go get them help. That's what they're doing for the Lord. So what was their motivation? Certainly it was not malignant hatred in their heart. Certainly it was not that he might show himself and display his kingdom because they don't even believe him at this point. I think, among other things, they wanted to see for themselves these miracles. See, the only miracle up to this point that these brothers had been around was the miracle that took place in Cana, the first miracle. In fact, they didn't even know it took place. John makes it very clear as we studied in that account, the only ones who knew of the miracle was Mary, the mother of Jesus, a few servants, and the disciples. So they hadn't seen any of these miracles. I'm sure they heard about them, but they hadn't seen any. Really, the thing that unlocks the verse, unlocks their motivation is found in verse 4. Notice, if... Circle that word, would you? If here means if. It's structured that way in the Greek. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you really do these things, if you are really for real, if you really have this miraculous power, then why are you sneaking around Galilee? Go up to Jerusalem and show yourself. And I'm sure they may have reasoned too that had he been received by the religious leaders, they would have received him as well. You know, this is a very similar kind of challenge that Satan gave to Jesus during the time of the temptation. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. If you are really the Messiah, Satan says, go to the peak of the temple and do a sworn dive and God's angels will catch you up. And all men will know, oh, it's Messiah. But Jesus didn't do that. Because he didn't operate on the basis of sensation and emotion. He operated on the basis of truth. He operated on the basis of the scriptures. Listen, if you want to follow some of these thrill-seeking ministries, the thrill of today will become tomorrow's letdown. You'll always need more. 
But I can tell you this, you can evaluate any ministry, any time, any place by its teaching. It's not an issue of emotion. You cannot evaluate it by the size of it, by the mass of it, by the sensation of it, by the emotion of it, by the teaching of it. What do they teach? And of course, this challenge that they give has to be understood in light of verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Now, it seems absolutely incredible that these brothers who had lived with him were not believing in him. You say they didn't believe in God? No, they believed in God. Remember, there's a time of transition that's going on at this point in God's spiritual history. Remember Paul, when he would go and preach on those missionary journeys, and he'd go into the synagogue, and he'd win some Jews, and when the Jews were won, he appointed some to be elders. Brand new believers in Christ appointed to be elders. Wait a minute. The Scripture says, not a new convert, lest he be conceited. Well, they were Old Testament believers. They had known the Lord as best one could know the Lord under the Old Covenant. And now they were completed Jews. They had come to a full faith in the Lord. And of course, there will come a time when Paul will say, God now has overlooked all times of ignorance. He's declared to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Christ, having furnished proof to all men that he is Lord by raising him from the dead. But right now we're in that time of transition. And at this point, unlike the 12, these men don't believe. Now what is it? that blinded their eyes. Interestingly, the tax gatherers, the prostitutes, they embraced them because they needed forgiveness. What blinded their eyes? Well, we're not told specifically, but I suspect it was jealousy. I mean, can you imagine growing up in a family with the Lord Jesus? Nobody ever had a brother like Jesus. While the other kids got spankings, Jesus never had any. He was always joyful, always kind, never selfish, always respectful. I can hear him saying, why don't you be like Jesus? Nobody like the Lord Jesus. And I suspect that created some jealousy. Again, we don't know for sure, but we know this. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. If you were here during the time of our study in John 2, where we examined the cleansing of the temple, about a quarter of that sermon dealt with Psalm 69, a messianic psalm, where the cleansing of the temple was prophesied. And in that messianic psalm, you have the psalmist saying on behalf of Messiah, I am become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Psalm 68 verses 8 and 9 predicted the unbelief of Mary and Joseph's sons. By the way, that was written nine centuries before the fact. And it's so precise, this prophecy, because it doesn't say my father's sons but my mother's sons. Because Jesus was not the son of Joseph. He was the son of God. But praise the Lord, these men ultimately, as you see in the upper room, Acts 1 and verse 14, come to faith after the resurrection of Christ. So there's the setting for the doubt. There's the brothers who do the doubt. Finally, I want you to consider Christ's reaction to their doubt. Look now, if you will, at his response in verse 6. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. Now, there are two words in the original language of the New Testament that are translated time. One kairos that speaks qua uh, quantitatively, like the time is 12 o'clock. 
And then there's a second word that speaks quantitatively, kairos, which is the word that's used here, that's used in reference to the events that take place within that time. Jesus is saying it's not the right time. It's not the best time. It's not the favorable time for me to do what you want me to do. Now, it may have been an opportune time for them, but it was not the right time for him. He said, I will manifest myself at the right time and no sooner. Jesus will ultimately do that. Now, think about how this whole thing happened. The first time he came into the city, he cleansed the temple. Really an open manifestation. And the seeds for hatred were planted. Second time, he comes into the city, less public, heals one man at the pool of Bethesda. Man, they really hate him then. Third time, he comes into the city, he comes in undercover to the Feast of Booths, very low key, teaches them the word of God, nothing spectacular. The next time he will come, at the right time, in the fullness of time, he will come open like he had never come before. He will come riding on a donkey on that Palm Sunday. He will present himself to Israel as their Messiah. The multitudes will say, hail him, hail him, hail him. But a few days later, they will say, nail him, nail him, nail him. The Lord was operating on a divine timetable. My time is not yet at hand. When you come to verse 30 of this chapter, they are seeking to seize him, and no man could lay a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20, these things he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized them. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, it changes, and Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified, because the path of glory is to the path of suffering. Now my soul has become troubled. And what, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, why? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Humanly speaking, he says, I wish I could get out of it. But I was born for this hour. He was born to die. He had a destiny from eternity past, and he had to go there at just the right time, in the fullness of time, at the very hour that God wanted him crucified. When we come to the Passion accounts, we will see on that Passover at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, at the precise time, Jesus dies. My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. I'm on a divine schedule. You're not. That's what he's saying. Now, there's a lesson here for us. If you are a believer, you too are on a divine timetable. Now, unsaved people, unlike the child of God, have real no divine timetable. Your life, if you're unsaved here and not yet born again, it's just a random. You're just living. God doesn't have a plan for your life yet until you come to faith in Christ. In fact, the only appointment that's on your timetable is your appointment with death, for it's appointed for all men to die. And Psalm 139 says, even before you lived a single day, God recorded the day of your death. But his brothers and sisters, yeah, you guys go on up. You're not on a divine timetable. Why? Because they're a part of this world. But the believer, it's different. And so Paul will say to the church at Ephesus to redeem the time. Why? Because the days are evil. If you are a believer, you are a part of God's redemptive schedule. 
And some of us need to be reminded that this is the first day of the rest of our life. If there's been failure, there's grace to cleanse, to forgive, and to give you a brand new start. Now look at verse 7. He further explains why they can go at any time. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. He's saying it may be an opportune tune for you, but it's not for me. And the reason is because this world, this worldly mindset that you have for me to go up there and make this great display of miraculous power, that world that you love, it hates me. That world that you're in fellowship in with, I'm not. It's a problem for me. Why? Because they hate me. He's the light of the world. And when the light shows up, it reveals sin. And that's why some people won't like you. Because you will reflect the Lord Jesus and they will see in you what they ought to be and they'll be convicted. He will later say, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. Listen, if everybody loves me, I know I'm doing something wrong. If you live for the Lord Jesus... Young person, I hope you're hearing me. There's going to be some folks who just don't like you. So he says to his brother, a very gracious answer in verse 8, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. Now you read that verse and you may scratch your hand ahead and it seems to say, well, he's not going. He's not going to go to the feast. Then you come down to verse 10 and it says he goes. Well, what is it? Well, the liberal theologians say, A, he either lied, or B, they say this is a contradiction in the Bible. No, as I pointed out to you, the word that he uses for time, my time is not yet in hand, is the word that doesn't refer to a specific hour, but to a season of time. The word for a right opportunity. We might say today, for the right psychological moment. And those of you who are in sales, you know there's that right moment. Okay, now's the time to get them to put the signature at the bottom of the contract. That's what the word kairos means. In light of their hatred and in light of the Father's plan and schedule for Jesus Christ, it was not the opportune time for him to go. If he had done it, maybe his brothers would have spread the information he's here and it would have resulted in a premature death. He knew what he was doing, verse 9. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But after his family had gone, we learn, verse 10, but when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. By the way, this is a beautiful illustration of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. In the sovereign plan of God, no one could kill Christ before it was time. And yet he doesn't test the Father, so to speak, he doesn't go up early, nor does he lag behind, but because he is sensitive to the work of the Spirit within his life, he goes up at just the right time. Now again, there were three visits. The first time he came in with a whip, and the seeds were sown. He arrived, and they knew it. The second time, he does that miracle at the pool of Bethesda. And after he does that miracle, because he does it on a Sabbath day, and they ask the man to pick up his mat, and they call that work, we read in John 5, 18, for this cause, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So in light of the anger of the day, he's going to go at just the right time. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877 877- 
787-787-7478 and requesting program John 021. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.